Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This is the second episode in our adult education series that explores the major denominations of Judaism other than humanistic or secular. In this episode, Rabbi Shalom identifies the major tenets of Reform Judaism and the theology behind those beliefs. As a program note, there will be no discussion on conservative Judaism due to the field engineer being out sick. So uh, in our continuing series on comparative Judaism, before we took a look at Orthodox Judaism and conservative Judaism, uh, as I mentioned in an earlier class, we actually should have started with Reform Judaism because historically, of the modern denominations, it's the first one that appears, even if it appears more as a phenomenon than as an organized denomination. Um, you know, in some ways, actually, uh, humanistic Judaism is almost the first example of a denomination that showed up and said, we are a denomination right away, as opposed to being a phenomenon first and then gradually coalescing into some kind of organized movement. Uh, the Orthodox movement is notoriously fractious and without any core center and not even agreeing who is Orthodox and who isn't because each group to the right thinks the ones to the left of them are uh, heretics. Um, and uh, the conservative movement as well <coughs> took a long time to get its act together as an organized movement and to clarify what it was about. And for some, it still isn't clear enough. Um, but the reform movement uh, really started as a phenomenon uh, beginning in the early 19th century, the early 1800s, as part of a challenge in Jewish identity that took place after the French Revolution. Before the French Revolution, before the Enlightenment really had a political impact, Jews had really no line between their religious identity and their ethnic identity. They were part of a Jewish community, they spoke Jewish languages, they lived among Jews, their rights to live in the countries they were living in were collective rights. You were only able to live there because you were part of a Jewish community, not because you were an individual citizen. That, that concept didn't really exist for Jews. Um, and there had never really been a line between the people of Israel and the faith of Israel, because that was one and the same. But you can see that in other communities as well, Polish Catholics, uh, Italian Catholics. I mean, there wasn't a, a line between being Italian and being Catholic in that period. It was just all the, everyone who spoke your language was also the same religion. So it was the same for Jews too. Uh, but beginning with the French Revolution, new questions are asked. That is, what is your nationality? Who do you count as a brother? Remember the French Revolution's motto, liberté, égalité, fraternité, brotherhood. Um, who, who counts as your people? And if you want to maintain a distinct Jewish identity that keeps you as some kind of separate uh, community, What's the basis for that? Uh, what's the basis for your continuing identity? Uh, now, some people by the end of the 19th century decided to answer, well, we're, a, we're an ethnic group, we're a people. Um, even if that was problematic for their sense of integration into uh, European ethnic nation states. Uh, this is the beginning of the Zionist movement, also Yiddish uh, socialists were very active in that, that, that kind of diaspora nationalism. But the other answer that was given, and much earlier, is that we are simply a religious community. The line is, we are Germans of the Mosaic faith, or Americans of the Jewish religion. That answer was to say that we are Jewish by our beliefs, by our religious practices, by our synagogue connections, but not necessarily in an ethnic sense, in a national sense, because we don't want that to be a barrier to our participation in the broader society. 
Now, this is sort of the ideological cast that's given to the, the reform movement at a later point, but nothing starts out that simple. Uh, it often starts out with grassroots actions that people begin to take that later on, when you look back, see, oh, that's how it went from A to B, but they're going to be taking these small steps in their own way. Once the ghetto, the ghetto doors are broken down, once Jews are able to become citizens, they begin looking around them. Sometimes they might even visit their neighbors' houses or their neighbors' religious institutions. And they begin to wonder, what is it in my life that should change in response to this new circumstance? Both to look worthy of being fully emancipated, getting the right to vote and serve in office and so on, but also simply to be in concert with the values and the attractions I see in the world around me. All too often, reform is condemned for leading Jews into assimilating the outside culture, but actually it was a way of Jews who were already integrating to the outside culture staying Jewish, because without that they would have left behind all vestige of Jewish identity and moved out into general culture, like you think of the, the, the grandchildren of Moses Mendelssohn or Heinrich Heine, who said that his conversion was his passport into Western culture. He said, well, I don't believe either the, either Judaism or Christianity, so I might as well change the paperwork, and then I get to be published, and I can be successful. Um, so reform was, a, in a way, a, a resolution to that. But it begins in fits and starts. So in the 1810s, in North America, you begin to have uh, men and women sitting together in the synagogue, what are called family pews. Now, that wasn't the traditional Jewish practice. You had a women's section and a men's section, either side by side, or more often women behind and men in front, or women on the balcony and men down below. Um, if you go to traditional synagogues, both here uh, and also in Europe, you'll see that model. Well, this was the beginning of reform, a beginning of change to have families being able to sit together. And why? Well, you go to a church and they had family pews. People were able to sit with their family and not separated by gender. Um, you also uh, begin to see um, the change in nomenclature. So in uh, Hamburg in the 1810s, um, a man named Israel Jacobson founds an organization he calls the Hamburg Temple. He chooses the term temple specifically. It's provocative because originally temple was the temple in Jerusalem. And you didn't refer to your synagogue, your local community, shtibble, whatever you called it, as a temple. It was a house of meeting, a Beit Knesset, but not a temple, because there was only one temple in Jerusalem. Well, what does Jacobson mean when he says, this is the Hamburg temple? I don't need another temple. I don't need to go back to Jerusalem. This is my temple. I am rooted here. I'm not envisioning being anywhere else. Um, you begin to see the translation of some of the prayers, so that they're not all recited in Hebrew. They begin to be recited in German. Why? Well, because people want to understand what they're saying. And also, if you go to other uh, Protestant churches in Germany uh, or in England or in America at the time, guess what language they're preaching in? The language people understand. Not in Latin. That's a Catholic practice, but Protestant practices do it in the language people understand. Well, why not be able to have sermons or even the prayers in language that we understand, say these early 19th century Jews? They also begin to modify the clothing they wear. Do they shave their face? Do men shave their faces or not? What kind of food are they able to eat? Do they work on Saturdays? After all, if you're living in a sort of Jewish bubble and everyone closes on Saturday, then there's no problem. 
once you're living in a surrounding world where everyone closes on Sunday, and your business contact, there was people who close on Sunday, if you close on Friday afternoon through Saturday and on Sunday because they're all closed, you're at a real disadvantage. So, again, you begin to see this change happening more in people's behavior than as an ideological uh, direction. It takes about 30 years from the 1810s to the 1840s for there to be a cadre of rabbis who begin to create some philosophy, some theology behind the changes that are already taking place. Um, these are people who have traditional rabbinic educations. There isn't a reformed seminary to start with. They start with a traditional education, but they also go to university. Many of them have PhDs from German universities, which they're only able to do beginning in the early 19th century. It's part of that emancipation experience. Um, and by having these advanced degrees, they've learned there's wisdom to be learned from the outside world. They've learned the value of integrating to German culture. Uh, they like the idea of translating prayers and so on, and they also want to get to some of the theological questions of what does it mean to be uh, the people of Israel in our uh, philosophy? Do we want to return to the land of Israel? Do we want to restore the animal sacrifices? Do we want to rebuild the temple? And if we don't want those things, why are we saying we want those things in our services every week? And so, in the 1840s, you have a series of rabbinical conferences in 1845, um, sorry, 44, 45, and 46, there's a series of conferences in different cities in Germany, where they begin to ask these kind of questions. And some of the questions they ask are even more radical than they wind up going, but they're willing to ask the questions. Do we need Hebrew at all in the service? Do we want to keep bothering with this circumcision thing that's so barbaric compared to modern values? Are we open to having pipe organs in our synagogues? After all, modern worship includes pipe organs. I remember, you see what modern worship stands for? It stands for what their neighbors are doing in their churches. Um, should we move our Sabbath to Sunday? Because that's what everyone around us is doing. Why are we so stuck on Saturday? Why don't we just, you know, it's like a leap year. Just, just jump a day and then, then we'll be in sync with everybody else. So they ask these questions. In fact, um, one of the origins of the conservative movement was, were some rabbis who were at these meetings and said, how dare you ask these questions? How dare you ask whether Hebrew belongs at all? And so they left. They said, this is too radical. In the end, they decided that there should be some Hebrew, but that you could translate, that they could edit the prayer service, cut out repetitions, cut out references to return to Israel, to restoring a temple, reframe a Messiah, not as a personal Messiah, but as a messianic age of universal brotherhood, or to reframe the ideas in more uh, publicly acceptable language, uh, and also to liberalize riding on the Sabbath. Uh, and this is, of course, in horse-drawn carriages in the time that have you know, uh, BMWs, um, and uh, and also liberalizing work permission on uh, on Saturday and so on. Um, and this is the beginning of a kind of organized reform trend uh, that ultimately crystallizes in a series of organizations in Europe, but also in America, where this, the heartland of reform moves after the 1840s. Um, after 1848, there were a series of very liberal revolutions in Europe, uh, non-Jewish revolutions, that created a possibility for a liberalization that then gets clamped down on by the reactionary conservative forces, and it makes it very difficult to make changes. As one example, in Germany, if you're a member of the Jewish community of Hamburg, let's say, you pay a regular tax that's charged to all Jews, that supports the official government-sponsored rabbinate of the city of Hamburg. It's called the Gemeinde system. You're part of a, a Jewish Gemeinde. 
Well, if you're a Reformed Jew and you want to have a Reformed rabbi work in your Reformed congregation, you have to pay twice. Because you have to pay your city tax for the establishment rabbi, who is traditional, and then you also have to tax yourself voluntarily to create the separate community. So it created an inherent barrier. Not to mention the fact that the, the central uh, official rabbi wouldn't recognize the liberal one, and you know we see this phenomenon happening in Israel even today, or even in, uh, in England, which still has a chief rabbi officially. Um, but in America, because of the free market approach to religious practice, there was no chief rabbi, there was no chief rabbinate. In fact, there were a lot more, there weren't even a lot of rabbis in America in the uh, first 75 years of the, uh, of the independent United States, um, simply because rabbis didn't move. Uh, and there wasn't a seminary here. Uh, rabbis stayed where they were in Europe, and the lay Jews were out here doing it their own way. And sometimes they had official, what they called shamas or sextons, um, but there were very few rabbis. So a lot of the changes I described happening in America were happening without rabbis endorsing them. They were just happening. By the 1840s, there are some rabbis that come to uh, North America, and many of them come from this German ferment of reform-style ideas. Um, so that by the 1870s, you begin to see the creation of organizations uh, designed around Reform Judaism, although initially they don't use the word reform at all. The first created in the 1870s is called the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, which was thought to be ultimately a, uh, a connection of all American Jewish uh, congregations. It wasn't explicitly reformed. In 1875, they, that was in 1873, the UAHC started. In 1875, there's a Hebrew Union College which is created. And the thought is that this will be an American seminary, training rabbis in American Judaism, not reform, the Judaism appropriate for America. English sermons, prayers in both English and Hebrew, liberalized, mixed seating, that was the agenda, but the labeling was American. And um, shortly after the first graduation of that rabbinic class, um, which finished in 1883, in 1885 they created something called the Central Conference of American Rabbis. Again, not reform, just American rabbis because the thought is what they were doing was American Judaism. One of their founding figures, whose name was Isaac Mayer Wise, wrote a prayer book called Minhag America, The Practice in America. He put the Star Spangled Banner in the back as one of the psalms that you could sing. Okay. So you see this conjunction. But they would use language like America is our promised land. This is our Jerusalem. And they used temple for all of their congregations because this is our temple. We don't need, we don't need to imagine a temple anywhere else. All right, so you begin to see a flavor of how the reform movement is approaching uh, these issues. And it's very interesting how uh, the directions it took in certain uh, areas. So as one example, um, there is a traditional Jewish rite of passage that applies to boys called the bar mitzvah, the age at which they are obligated to fulfill all of the commandments. Um, when the reform movement took a look at this, they said, well, we have some problems with this because we don't follow all the ritual commandments anyways. So why, we, why would we call it a bar mitzvah if he's not doing all the mitzvah and all the commandments? Um, and secondly, what does a 13-year-old pitcher know about anything? Um, you know, maybe it makes more sense to have it at a later date. They also happened to notice that their neighbors had a very interesting group ceremony that applied to boys and girls that would happen at the culmination of the religious education around age 15 or 16. It was the ceremony called Confirmation. Again, the Lutheran Church, a lot of other Protestant churches had this. Um, and so the reform movement 
began creating these kind of confirmation ceremonies. In fact, many of them dropped bar mitzvah entirely and only had confirmations. Um, people who were raised in this country into the 1940s and 50s in Reformed congregations, a few of them had bar mitzvah, most of them did not. It wasn't until the 50s that things began to change. We'll talk about that, uh, how that happened in a little bit. But for a long time, confirmation was what there was. And again, it was equal for both boys and girls. Um, and it was the culmination of their religious education, somewhat modeled on the Christian uh, precedent, but uh, a new ceremony that in some ways has advantages over the bar and bar mitzvah. Having worked with both 13-year-olds and 16-year-olds, I can see the advantages of the, uh, the later age. Um, other examples included um, their approach to social action and community service and interfaith dialogue. Because after all, if their nationality is American, but their religion is Jewish, then they should be in dialogue with Protestants and Catholics and other religious groups as part of their good stewardship, their good citizenship in the country. So many of them were involved in social action activities, um, trying to improve the world, not using the phrase tikkun olam at the time, but being in concert with the progressive era of politics and of political activism that was the case in the 1890s and early 1900s, uh, but also framing themselves as one of the American religions. Uh, this is where you get the idea of Judaism as a religion, not as an ethnic group. So the pinnacle of this early reform period, this 19th century reform, is a document called the Pittsburgh Platform, which was produced in 1885. Um, all the discussions for this platform, by the way, were in German, because all the rabbis who were uh, creating it were trained or educated in German, either in uh, Austria-Hungary, that empire in German, or in Germany proper, or the varieties of German states, because it wasn't unified Germany yet. Um, and so their discussions were done in German. In fact, the first Bible, uh, sorry, the first prayer book translation in America was done by a rabbi named David Einhorn, who translated it into German, even though he was in America, because his audience all spoke German, he put it from Hebrew into German. And then uh, Isaac Mayer Wise is the one who put it into English, and his became more successful because it was the longer-term uh, strategy. Okay, so let's take a look at this Pittsburgh platform. It's very straightforward, eight basic um, points. Oh, is there next one? Okay. <laughs> yes. So you see it labeled on top, Pittsburgh platform. Um, and what I want to do is I want us to read these uh, planks, so to speak, but think about what is the traditional perspective on this topic, and how is this a change, a reform, from that tradition? Can I get a volunteer to read number one? Okay. <laughs> uh, we recognize in every religion an attempt to grasp the infinite, and in every mode, source, or book of revelation held sacred in any religious system, the conscious, oh, consciousness of the indwelling of God in man. We hold that Judaism presents the highest conception of the God idea as taught in our holy scriptures and developed and spiritualized by the Jewish teachers in accordance with the moral and philosophical progress of their respective ages. We maintain that Judaism preserved and defended midst continual struggles and trials and under enforced isolation this God idea as the central religious truth for the human race. Okay. So what do you see in here that's a, a transition from a traditional version of how you might approach this question? What's a God idea? <laughs> What's a God idea? <laughs> it's very psychologized, right? Yeah. Um, or sociologized. 
Uh, it's no one prays to a God idea, no, right. you know. Um, and that the God idea is in our scripture. It's not necessarily in our hearts, but in our scripture. Right. <laughs> right. Did they write it out to go read on yes. the paper? Yes. Right. That was a big deal. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Although I don't know if back then the Orthodox were as strict about it as they are now. Um, things even in Orthodoxy haven't always been the way they are now. Really? Yeah. Um, other examples here, notice that every religious system is an attempt to grant, there's a, a clear ecumenical interfaith dialogue kind of a flavor to this. They know this is being published in English, that non-Jews are going to read it, uh, but also this is part of their, their belief that they are one of many religions and uh, all religions are an attempt to grasp this idea. There is still a sense that Judaism is the best, right? it's the highest conception of the God idea. Um, but also, but, but it's still the couched in we hold that, so it's, it's still our opinion of yeah, very rather good. than very good we know or and also notice their teachings developed and spiritualized by Jewish teachers yeah. in accordance with the moral and philosophical progress of their respective ages. In other words, if we have new ideas, things can progress, things can change. And it also kind of lets some of the stuff that happened in the Bible that we find morally repugnant to be, well, that was how they did it then. Oh, we'll, we'll get to the Bible, number two. Uh, <laughs> um, the only other thing I wanted to highlight is, notice the language they're using. Um, there's no Hebrew phrases here, right? even in English letters. Um, you have the God idea, Holy Scriptures, I mean, even the phrase Holy Scriptures to our ears sounds very not Jewish. We wouldn't have to use that these days. Uh, but this is, again, part of their integration. In the earliest uh, prayer books they produced, called the Union Prayer Book, um, they actually refer to the minister who is leading things because he's ministering to them. And the early Reformed rabbis often would use the title doctor so-and-so because that was the more prestigious title than rabbi. Um, and, and things have changed a bit, but uh, it's interesting to see even how reform has evolved, as we'll see a little bit later. Okay, uh, somebody read number two about the Bible. Okay, go ahead. Uh, we recognize in the Bible the record of the consecration of the Jewish people to its mission as the priest of the one God and value it as the most potent instrument of religious and moral instruction. We hold that the modern discoveries of scientific researches in the domain of nature and history are not antagonistic to the doctrines of Judaism. The Bible, reflecting the primitive ideas of its own age, and at times clothing its conception of divine providence and justice, dealing with men in miraculous narratives. Okay, so what's... <laughs> what? <laughs> Miraculous narratives? You mean they're just stories? <laughs> they're just stories? And they're, it's clothing this? And someone made it up? Right? Uh, what else jumps out of you out of this one? <clears throat> primitive? Right. <laughs> yes, the Bible reflects the primitive ideas of its own age. Yes. But, but it's still uh, saying, you know... God gave us the Bible, and it's our job to give it to you. One God. I'm not sure it's saying that God gave the Bible. Consecration of the Jewish people. It's a record of the consecration of the Jewish people, but it doesn't mean that God wrote it. And why is it valued? Not because God wrote it. It's valued because it's useful. Right? It's a, a potent instrument of instruction. Most potent instrument. Right. Also notice the explicit shout-out 
to scientific research in nature and history. What is this talking about? Two fields, archaeology and biology, evolution. They're saying no, no uh, problem at all. Now, how do they square that circle of saying we, have, we uh, do not find these researches antagonistic? Well, they have to demote the Bible. They're, they're, Right, and they're, they're willing to demote the Bible because they elevate science. So in 1885, they're adopting Darwinism versus creationism. Absolutely. Right, because the Bible reflects the primitive ideas of its own age. Didn't the Catholic Church come out with something similar within the last year? No, a little longer than that. Okay. They, um, I, I think, under uh, John Paul II, so this is before Benedict, um, they, uh, they said that uh, evolution accurately describes... You no, know, I meant like... Not going even further than just evolution, they, they oh, came oh, out oh. with something I think even more recently about um, you know creationism versus you know Big Bang theory that they you know accept the Big Bang theory and that you know it, you know so it went even further than mm -hmm. you know evolution and things like that. That yeah. all science is is an accurate understanding right. of how the world is. Right. right. Um, I mean, this is again happening in 1885. Right. Uh, so the Catholic Church at the time was not so interested yeah. in this, <laughs> but it is interesting that uh, they're willing to be so explicit in their uh, affirmation of, uh, of scientific knowledge, even to the point of saying the Bible is more likely to be wrong than science is. Okay, number three. Another volunteer? Sure. Okay. We recognize in the Mosaic legislation a system of training the Jewish people for its mission during its national life in Palestine. And today we accept as binding only its moral laws and maintain only such ceremonies as elevate and sanctify our lives, but reject all such as are not adapted to the views and habits of modern civilization. Okay. So animal sacrifices, but what else would count in this? Circumcision. Well, circumcision they kept doing. But dietary laws, laws of what you wear, um, you see, what's interesting here is they're calling it the Mosaic legislation, but really they mean the rabbinic. They're including rabbinic law based on that that claimed uh, Mosaic authorship of the Torah, um, and they say it was binding at one point when we lived in our own state a long time ago. And today we only accept the moral laws, not the ritual laws. And if there's a conflict between tradition and modern civilization, which wins? Modern civilization. We reject all that are not adapted to modern civilization. In other words, push comes to shove, we'd rather be modern than traditional. Okay, and then number four continues in the same vein. We hold that all such mosaic and rabbinical laws as regulate diet, priestly purity, and dress originated in ages and under the influence of ideas entirely foreign to our present mental and spiritual state. They fail, fail to impress the modern Jew with the spirit of priestly holiness. Their observance in our days is apt rather to obstruct than to further modern spiritual elevation. Take that, conservative movement. Are you going to have your matzah and your sausage? <laughs> uh, well, but, I mean, their, their point is that all those rules, they are totally foreign to who we are now. They are, they have nothing to do with who we are now. And, well, that's like the, the mikvah immersion laws and, and uh, that, not touching dead Collins, bodies. and Collins can't marry Levi's. Yeah, right, all, the, all those uh, boundaries. Uh, dead, oh, treatment of dead bodies and, and so on. Um, 
But also notice that the, uh, the claim that even if you were to do them, it's getting in your way. You know, anyone who's holding on to these is kind of backwards. I mean, this, that's an extension you can make out of this. Uh, their observance in our days is apt rather to obstruct. It's going to get in your way than, rather than encourage you to elevate yourself spiritually. Again, you can see how anti-traditional this is. Um, number five. Well, okay, repeat volunteers. Okay. <laughs> Should we start over? Yeah. <laughs> we recognize in the modern era of universal culture of heart and intellect the approaching of the realization of Israel's great messianic hope for the establishment of the kingdom of truth, justice, and peace among all men. We consider ourselves no longer a nation, but a religious community, and therefore expect neither a return to Palestine, nor a sacrificial worship under the sons of Aaron, nor the restoration of any of the laws concerning the Jewish state. This is so shocking. <laughs> not science. Yeah, very not science, right? This, and keep in mind, this is the... The beginning of, this is pre-Herzl, because uh, the Dreyfus trial is in 1894, and the Jewish state is written in 1896, so it's a little bit before, but there are the inklings of this kind of a, maybe we should start returning to Israel, or certainly there are plenty of people who would claim that they are a religious nation or some kind of a nation. Here they're saying, we are not a nation, we are just a religious community, and so we don't want to return to Palestine, we don't have, want to have sacrificial worship. Now, why, why is this claim related to the desire to be a good citizen of the country where they are? Because dual alliances were not really recognized back then. Right, dual citizenship was not a very popular concept yeah. back then. Uh, even today, it's the problem. Civil War was only 20 years old. <laughs> 30 years old, right. right. Oh yeah, over 20 years, right. Yeah, right, right. Um, so their claim, they're, you know, if you expected a return to some other country, then Where's your real allegiance here? Uh, if you imagine reestablishing a new set of laws around your other state, what, you know, what's your loyalty to these laws? You also see, you see persecution of immigrants that come in and, and hold on to, whether it's Irish Catholics or Italians or, you know, all those waves, they come in, they hold on, and then they, you know, they struggle, whereas the people that assimilate and declare themselves American first, you know, they have a leg up with If they're allowed to, right. myself in the, uh, the balancing area. I was just wondering, were they all Jew, German Jews at this point? They were predominantly German Jews. Um, this is just the beginning of the larger wave of Eastern European Jewish immigration. The uh, major pogroms that sparked that happened in 1881 and 1882. So this is the beginning of that wave. Still, the American Jewish community is predominantly German Jews. There were Eastern European Jews who came in even before 1881 but still the predominant population. And certainly the people writing this, the, the people who were established, who had money, who had power, were of this German-Jewish, Reform-Jewish background. And the Eastern European, Yiddish-speaking, more traditional Jews won't take demographic precedence for another 20 years, and they won't take sort of prestige precedence for another 20 years after that because they got to get established and make money and you know, become uh, Americanized, so to speak. Uh, so it takes a while for them to switch. Okay, so let's look at uh, number six. 
we recognize in Judaism a progressive religion ever striving to be in accord with the postulates of reason. We are convinced of the utmost necessity of preserving the historical identity with our great past. Christianity and Islam being daughter religions of Judaism, we appreciate their providential mission to aid in the spreading of monotheistic and moral truth. We acknowledge that the spirit of broad humanity of our age is our ally in the fulfillment of our mission, and therefore we extend the hand of fellowship to all who cooperate with us in the establishment of the reign of truth and righteousness among men. Okay. So, again, you have this idea of Judaism as a progressive, changing religious tradition, always trying to agree with reason. Not revelation, not miracle, not supernatural, reason. Um, also notice the uh, wonderfully accommodating approach to other religious traditions. Wasn't your, you know, last year you had that Ernestine Rose talk mm -hmm. you gave. Wasn't she writing around the same Oh, sure. Time? Yeah. She's living in the same time period. This is <clears throat> and in the same areas, right? It's the Eastern Seaboard. Yeah, I mean, this is more Midwest, uh, but it's certainly applying to people in New York, okay. Philadelphia. Okay. Okay. But uh, it's, uh, I mean, it's a convention of people from all over the uh, the country. Um, it's, and it's sought to apply everywhere, just because it happens to be done okay. in Pittsburgh. It doesn't only apply to, you know, west of the Alleghenies. Right, right. I'm just thinking about the ways that they are antithetical. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can I have... this statement in particular. You can have a wide range of perspectives. Co I mean, look at life today, right? <laughs> you can have a wide range of perspectives. Go down Facebook and you've got... And you know, there's a parallel Facebook universe. And I have read... <laughs> I, I've read, you know, nothing other than what you shared with us of her. Mm -hmm. But it, I, I'm not sure that she would have described herself as Jewish. <laughs> well, she had some solidarity instincts. Her, she yeah. defended Jews when they were attacked in, in some publications. But um, her... Secularism and her feminism mm -hmm. came before anything else. Yes, right. That's right. And this is this document is meant not meant to do anything like that. Right. Although another it. contemporary to this is a man named Felix Adler, who creates something called ethical culture, which is the idea of the idea of ethical because the focus is, again, on ethical actions. Um, and Adler wrote a response to this platform saying, why are you bothering with the historical Jewish stuff? Why not just move into what I'm doing? And he was actually trained as a reform rabbi. His father was a rabbi, uh, Adler, and his, uh, he was trained as a reform rabbi before he left it for this universal ethical culture model. Um, and he would read these clauses and say, well, if it's a broad humanity, then just be human. Why bother sticking on, you know, holding on to this historical identity you say it's important, but if you're being in accord with the postulates of reason and you want to spread moral, uh, moral truth and monotheism just like the other religions, and there's a spirit of broad humanity and you want to work with everybody and, and your goal is the reign of truth and righteousness, your messianic hope is a kingdom of truth and justice and peace for everybody, why, why be so parochial? You know, why, why keep hanging out with only your own people? Um, interesting that, that number five also... Uh, has redefined the Messiah from a king from the line of King David who will reestablish a Jewish kingdom, which is the original concept of Messiah, um, to this kind of universal golden age. Um, and that's a big change as well. Um, okay, let's look at number seven. We reassert the doctrine of Judaism that the soul is immortal, grounding the belief on the divine nature of human spirit. 
which forever finds bliss in righteousness and misery in wickedness. We reject as ideas not rooted in Judaism the beliefs both in bodily resurrection and in Gehenna and Eden, hell and paradise, as abodes for everlasting punishment and reward. Okay. So, notice they, they claim that the soul is immortal, but they have to have a reason for this belief. Not just we believe, not because it's revealed. We ground this belief in our experience of the human spirit, because if people like good and feel bad when they do bad, then... But again, they're trying to find evidence. They're trying to prove why they believe it. My favorite is that second sentence, because they say they reject as ideas not rooted in Judaism, and then they use the Hebrew words for the concepts. <laughs> but what, is, what does that mean? It's not, but, it's but not it, a good translation. But, it, but isn't a lot of this, like, we're living, we want to live next door to the Protestants, we want to go to the country clubs, we want to be invited to the, you know, the Rotary Club and all of these other mainstream things, and when we say we reject the bodily resurrection, we're saying we're, we're not that traditional, you know, believing in mysticism, we don't believe in all of these things, and we're not Catholic, and, you know, and so, yes, we, we accept your Protestant Things, immortal spirit. Right, and so we're kind of on the same page, and, and we can, you know, live, we can move away from the ghetto and into the suburbs and, and that. Well, I, I would say that this isn't only um, sort of craven opportunism. Um, I think there is genuinely a belief that based on their sense of knowledge and how the world works, that the idea of physically resurrecting a body and putting clothes on it and having it, it's just totally unrealistic and ridiculous. Um, and the, uh, the idea of an immortal spirit seems to have a kind of intellectual credibility to it. The idea of uh, ideas having reality um, goes back to German philosophy, idealist, what's called idealist philosophy, uh, Kant and Hegel and so on. Um, so th this concept of a spiritual realm based on the intellect is plausible and respectable given the knowledge of the time. A physical resurrection is an idea, they say it's not rooted in Judaism, even if it is. What they really mean is it's an idea that is not adapted to the views and habits of modern civilization. That's what it is. But this is the origin, by the way, of people who will say, well, Judaism doesn't believe in an afterlife. Well, Jews don't believe in an afterlife. Wrong. <laughs> There's a lot of sources in the Talmud and rabbinic literature on what they call Ha'olam Haba, the world to come. But in 1885, the reform movement came out with a statement saying, we reject as not part of Judaism these principles. So people raised to believe that these are not Jewish ideas then say, well, Jews don't believe in an afterlife. And my answer to that is, well, some Jews don't believe in an afterlife, but there is no one thing that all Jews believe anymore. Um, so that's a different kind of question. Not do what, what should Jews believe, but what are the varieties of Jewish beliefs? That's maybe the more accurate question uh, today. Okay, and last one, number eight. In full accordance with the spirit of the Mosaic legislation, which strives to regulate the relations between rich and poor, we deem it our duty to participate in the great task of modern times to solve on the basis of justice and righteousness the problems presented by the contrasts and evils of the present organization of society. I mean, it doesn't say 98% there. Um, but uh, it is, again, part of the progressive era uh, where there is both the extremes of poverty uh, the muckrakers are exposing the extremes of wealth of the Gilded Age um, and a sense of a social justice obligation to uh, ameliorate that situation. 
So one example of the rabbis who promoted this was a Chicago uh, rabbi whose name was Emil Hirsch, a very important figure in the founding of American Reform Judaism. He um, was actually brothers-in-law with another major rabbi who had a slightly different take on some of these issues. And it's interesting to imagine the uh, dinner conversations, family reunions. Um, but he was an adjunct professor at the University of Chicago. Um, he was one of the editors of the original Jewish Encyclopedia in English. It came out in 1906. Um, and he was also a very radical reform rabbi. Um, when they remodeled his sanctuary in the synagogue he worked for was called Chicago Sinai, uh, which is still around. When they remodeled the sanctuary, they didn't have an ark for the Torah and Torah scrolls. They had them locked up in the office. And they asked him, why don't you put the Sefer Torah back in the, in the office instead of out where people can use it? And he said, well, the Sefer is safer in the safe. <laughs> Um, there was a, another e episode where he was giving a, his high holiday sermons, and actually at Sinai, Sunday morning was the big sermon. Uh, they, they didn't call it Sabbath, but they had Sunday services, and those were the ones that everybody attended. Um, and he was giving one of his high holiday sermons, in fact, and one of the very rich members of the congregation who was in the meatpacking industry uh, walks in, like interrupts everything, and walks down to get his seat in the front row that he's paid for. And Hirsch uh, stops his talk and says, and here is the butcher of our congregation. <laughs> the guy turns around and walks out. Um, and then the other story I love is uh, he, Hirsch had a uh, large nose, and so some anti-Semitic columnist in a paper had uh, you know, made fun of him and, and mocked his nose as well. And so he saw him in a restaurant, and he came up to the reporter and he said, are you the little snot that ran down my nose? <laughs> but he was a big believer. Uh, Hirsch was a big believer in this social action mission. Um, and one of his congregants was a man named Julius Rosenwald, who you may know him from the series catalog of business, who made gajillions of dollars doing that, and then decided to use that money to build schools for African-American communities in the South. And there was a whole network of these Rosenwald schools that uh, provided a safe, uh, sort of one-room schoolhouse model, but an educational facility for uh, black students unable to attend the white public schools in, uh, in the South. Uh, so this was an example of this having a tangible benefit out there. You know, whether Rosenwald or uh, Hirsch kept kosher or not was irrelevant to whether they were doing good deeds out there from their vision of what, what their obligation of Judaism was. After all, if you've reduced all the ritual obligations, and you're saying that the moral laws are important. When you read those, you, you see material like the Jubilee year, uh, redeeming slaves, uh, not oppressing the poor, that kind of material. At least you highlight that. What's funny to me about number eight is that if you take out this mosaic legislation bit, the first part of the first sentence, yep. um, nothing about it has really anything to do with anything that we would believe. It's entirely humanistic other than this Sure, and actually a good a good amount of this, you know, you, some slight editing, we could agree with a lot of this. You know, the approach to the Bible, the approach to ritual laws, um, the idea that Judaism has evolved and changed over time, uh, and that you know we'll take the best of what the past offers, but they were writing in their own time and place. We don't have to agree it's all valid for all time. Um, yeah. Our commonality with other peoples and other human experiences. There's a lot that's positive here. So. This is the founding of what's called now Radical Reform. Uh, they created this Union Prayer Book, which was the dominant prayer book in Reform Judaism until the 1970s, um, and uh, with very minimal changes. 
Uh, but things begin to change in the reform movement because of this wave of Eastern European Jews who begin to immigrate um, in the 1880s. Yes. So did the Union Prayer Book, did it start in German? or? Well, it's interesting because it was, when they wanted to create one movement prayer book, they had these two models. They had the German translation, which was called, I think, Har Sinai by David Einhorn. And they had the English translation by Isaac Meyerwise. But Einhorn's was actually, content-wise, structurally, the better version. So what they did, but, but Wise was still active and had founded all these organizations. and So they sort of created a harmonization between the two, primarily basing it on Einhorn's model, which had been the German one, but it was Hebrew and English was the way it was done. Um, and in some places, more English than They had some pages that didn't have a Hebrew version of it. It was just English text to, to read and think about. Um, and choir directions and you know, uh, congregation stands, congregation sits, that kind of stuff that you wouldn't see in a traditional prayer book because you would just know when you're supposed to stand up. Um, and uh, it was, I mean, the first editions were published, I think, in the 1890s, um, but they continued to publish them into the 19, uh, 1960s. Okay, um, so with the immigration of large numbers of Eastern European Jews, they bring with them a lot of uh, elements of traditional Jewish life that the German Jews had left behind, like uh, ritual practice, wearing the talus and the kippah, the uh, head covering. In fact, in reform synagogues, in this classical reform, a radical reform model, they told you to take off your hat when you went in. Because in a civilized worship, you take off your hat when you enter the uh, religious space. Um, so these Eastern European Jews also are more attached to Jewish language um, and to a kind of Jewish peoplehood. So the rejection of we are not a nation, we are only a religious community for them would have been silly because in Tsarist Russia, you were not being persecuted for your religious beliefs. You were being persecuted for who you were, for the community you were in, for the language that you spoke. It was not simply, like the Cossack didn't show up and say, what is your belief on the Trinity? And then give you a choice. He, he was beating you because he could tell you were a Jew. Um, yes? This, one thing that's always shocked me a little bit about this movement is that while it accepted all these modern principles of assimilation, that egalitarianism went only as far as letting you families sit together, that women still were not included fully in practice. They, they were in education. That is, the, the confirmation religious school education was for both, uh, boys and girls. Mm -hmm. um, and but not in ritual but not in, not in ritual practice, not in presidents of synagogues, not in uh, being uh, women rabbis and Making so on. it look a lot more like modern Orthodox. Well, I mean, you have to be, all right. So you have to be a little bit fair. Because that is, Yeah, look at the cultural, I mean, they're talking about adapted to modern civilization. Were there a lot of women ministers running around? There were a couple. Women couldn't vote. Very few, women couldn't vote until the 19th and the last point, so. I just, I, but when you talk about Rosenwald, Well, you see, the, the irony is, people, uh, there was a great speech on this at one of our, our colloquium conferences we held some years ago by a reform rabbi by training, where he made the point that actually the reform movement presents itself as being very radical, but it was actually very conventional because they wanted to be like everyone else around them. 
So that's a very conventional. He, he was thinking about when I was growing up as a Reformed Jew in Denver. Um, like all the Jews I knew were not light their hair on fire radicals. They wanted to be like everybody else. They were trying to be conventional to the people around them, even if it was radical from the Jewish traditional practice perspective. So that you know your radicalism depends on where you're looking. So if the surrounding world were not supporting women in clergy positions, women in public speaking roles. Um, women in, in uh, non-profit leadership. I mean, even the Jewish labor unions, who were very secular. But the surrounding world wasn't accepting educating African-Americans with the South either. But that was, that was a well, stretch that was meaningful. For that one. I mean, it, I don't, you know, again, the, the Jewish, uh, uh, Jewish congregations in the South um, would sometimes take a more quietistic perspective on civil rights. Some were very progressive, and some were worried about the implications for their business and, and how it would work. Um, so this is the this is that balancing act that yes we need to poke a hole in the self righteousness of well, we were so progressive even in the 1910s, um, but also to understand that they were striving to be in agreement with what was contemporary. Yeah. And look, the uh, the feminist movement that begins to impact Jewish life is not because it's coming organically out of a Jewish context. The whole idea of orthodox. Jewish girls' education is in response to all these Yiddishist and secular schools that are providing education for girls, and they say we have to do something. Um, and the uh, the first woman is ordained in Reform Judaism. There was most likely a woman ordained in Germany in the late 30s uh, under Hitler, um, but that didn't turn out so well. Um, not because of anything she did. Um, but uh, in America, it didn't happen until 1972. Uh, Sally Prezan was the first uh, reform rabbi who was a woman. Um, but I wonder what else was going on in American life at the time that might have inspired them to finally allow women to be ordained. And they had actually had uh, a rabbinical response on the subject that said, in theory, yes, women could be ordained in the early period, in like the 1910s. It just, no, it, it just had never happened. <laughs> um, and then the same issue comes up with women serving in, as the presidents of synagogues and on the boards and is the membership under the man's name or not. These all come to the fore because of the feminist movement in the 1960s and 70s. Um, it's not an organic development. Um, I mean, and again, to their credit, they are responding to the outside world, but you know, to not be so hoity-toity, they didn't come up with it. You know, they weren't an egalitarian, LGBT affirmative congregation in the 1920s. Right. But radical in comparison to a very limited... Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, well, and they would not have called, see, I don't think they would have considered the label radical a positive for themselves, because they wanted to be conventional in many ways. Um, progressive, sure. Um, American, absolutely. Radical, uh, they wanted to be, I mean, look, Sinai was a very wealthy congregation, not because it was appealing to the labor union activists. I mean, it was, you know, often the bosses, although it was trying to appeal to the bosses to do better. Uh, there's a famous example of a reform rabbi from Portland who was interviewing at Temple Emanuel in New York, which was the big establishment synagogue. Um, and the rabbi who was interviewing his name is Stephen Wise, uh, wrote a scathing letter to the board after his interview that he published in the New York Times uh, that basically said, um, I, I could not preach at your synagogue because you wouldn't let me say what I want. And I want to say that you naming a name, run a, a sweatshop factory for your workers. And you, naming a name, run uh, mines in terrible conditions. 
he wanted to have the, so he founded a new synagogue he called the Free Synagogue, not because it was no dues, although I think it was, um, but also because he was free to say what he wanted to say, and he was very much into the sort of muckraking social critique uh, model. Um, but you're right that it, it applies to some issues and not to others. Gender issues often take a lot longer to grapple with, in part because, I mean, as we know, um, people don't, aren't even aware they're an issue. Oh, this, excuse me, the men aren't aware. <laughs> That they're an issue, and women don't necessarily have the vocabulary to articulate the issue um, until a certain period of time. Interesting, the personal is political until until a certain period of time. Right, exactly. There's a consciousness raising on both sides. Didn't have that much to do anyway, or we wouldn't have had the suffrage well, and all that. And you know, all that period, people, which really wasn't people sometimes later than that. And, and people sometimes forget the importance of technology in this. The the innovations like washing machines vacuum cleaners, these made a huge difference in enabling the work that was seen to be women's work to be done in a fashion that didn't require hours and hours of physically exhausting labor. I mean, taking your clothes to the stream and wringing them out with a hand wringer, and the kind of, I mean, that was, uh, that was exhausting, and because it was ascribed to women, it, was, uh, it, it limited their horizons. Once they had the opportunity to do things much more Conveniently, um, this is when you get the Betty for Dan. I was just going to say they realized then they were so miserable in the problem that had no name because then they're washing. Because they're just sitting around. They didn't know they were Right. They set up the dishwasher. They turn on the washing machine. Okay. Uh, all right. So the, the major change, the, the reform movement has to go through some changes in response to feminism in the 60s and 70s, in response to these Eastern European Jews who, by the 30s and 40s, are getting affluent and in integrated enough to want to join reformed temples, but want to have bar mitzvahs for their kids, want to wear the talus or the yarmulke in the services, want to have more Hebrew, identify with Zionism and a Jewish nationhood. As as early as 1937, uh, some 52 years after this first Pittsburgh platform, there's a follow-up platform called the Columbus Platform. There is actually one rabbi who was at the first meeting and was also at the second meeting, uh, David Phillipson. Um, and in 37, they say, you know what? It's okay to participate in building up the land of Israel for uh, Jewish refuge. Um, and they begin, and they acknowledge that even people of our community who are not of our belief system are still part of uh, the Jewish people. Um, recognizing that there's all these Jewish socialists and anarchists out there who don't believe anything but are clearly Jewish. Um, so the, the 37 Columbus platform marks the beginning of that change. So. As you go through uh, to 1999, which is the revised Pittsburgh platform, you'll see how much of a change this is from the original one. And there's a reason why they went back to Pittsburgh to do this version. Because they wanted to, in some way, supersede the old one, replace it. So in the introduction, in the preamble, they clarify that uh, in the past, we've had a series of these kind of statements um, that set up guidelines for us, um, and so we need to set up a new set of principles. Um, in the second paragraph of the preamble, throughout our history, we Jews have remained firmly rooted in Jewish tradition, even as we have learned much from our encounter with other cultures. The great contribution of Reform Judaism is that it has enabled the Jewish people to introduce innovation while preserving tradition, to embrace diversity while asserting commonality, to affirm beliefs without rejecting those who doubt, as long as they keep it quiet, and to bring faith to sacred texts without sacrificing critical scholarship. So you see this, they're trying to present it as a balancing act. 
Whereas the first statement might have said, if it's not modern, forget it. The Bible is from... Now they're saying, well, it's a balancing of tradition and modern values, what we learn from the outside and what we learn from the inside. This statement of principles affirms the central tenets of Judaism. God, Torah, Israel. Notice not Bible or Holy Scriptures. Now it's Torah. Even as it acknowledges a diversity of Reformed Jewish beliefs and practices, engage with the dialogue, and so on. Thus we hope to transform our lives through Kiddushah, Holiness. Notice they throw in the Hebrew. And in fact, in the original version, it actually puts it in Hebrew letters, not just in the English generation. So here's what they say about God. Now as I read these, I want, I want you to think, is there anything in this that a traditional Orthodox or conservative rabbi would disagree with in their description of God? We affirm the reality and oneness of God, even as we may differ in our understanding of the divine presence. We affirm that the Jewish people is bound to God by an eternal breach covenant as reflected in our varied understandings of creation, revelation, and redemption. We affirm that every human being is created by Selim Elohim in the image of God, and therefore every human life is sacred. We regard with reverence all of God's creation and recognize our human responsibility for its preservation and protection. We encounter God's presence in moments of awe and wonder, in acts of justice and compassion, in loving relationships and the experience of everyday life. We respond to God daily through public and private prayer, through study and through the performance of other mitzvot, sacred obligations, bin adam l'makom to God and bin adam l'chavero to other human beings. We strive for a faith that fortifies us through the vicissitudes of life, illness and healing, transgressions and repentance, or even a consolation, despair and hope. We continue to have faith that in spite of the unspeakable evils committed against our people and sufferings endured by others, the partnership of God and humanity will ultimately prevail. We trust in our tradition's promise that although God created us as finite beings, the spirit within us is eternal. In all these ways and more, God gives meaning and purpose to our lives. Anything a traditionalist would object to? Sounds very conservative. Sounds very traditional, right? Maybe, now, maybe the one line about differing in our understanding of divine presence that, yeah. that a conservative or orthodox would say, no, there's, there's one interpretation. Or there are a few that, authorized yeah. ways. It's a little bit less, less uh, multifaceted. Uh, what are some things you notice that's changed from the 1885 version as opposed to the God idea? There's no ecumenical interpretation. Right. Right. Although I guess we differ in our understandings of the divine presence could also be applied beyond the Jewish boundaries. I'm having a little um, problem with the conflict between the preamble and the God section. <laughs> There's this line that says, without rejecting those who doubt. Yep. But then down below, it that's right but I mean that that's the difference between the I think the greater community of Judaism versus the if you're going to be reformed this is this is what God is if you're going to be reformed Jew the preamble I think is we're all we we understand that there's a greater Jewish community and and we still are part of that. Oh, so we Jews as a whole, not we Jews in this Well, it's, also, it's enabled the Jewish people to do this. Uh -huh. um, but if you read, there is actually a sort of a commentary to these principles. And in talking about the God section, they do try to say that, well, just because it says this doesn't mean that uh, you can't be a doubter and still feel part of this community. They're, they're, they're trying to have it both ways. Well, it, it sounds pluralistic as long as the, the, the number one top dog is our interpretation or oh, our right? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're like I said, you're allowed to doubt as long as you don't say too much about it, um, or as long as you don't care that 
we're all going to be saying stuff like this. Uh, this is what we are, this is what we say, you can believe it or not, but this is what we're going to say. That's sort of the style. So shortly after this, um, around the same time, they came out with a new prayer book as well, called Mishkan Tefillah, uh, which is the, uh, the sanctuary of prayer, so to speak. Um, and in that one, you, it's very interesting, they brought back some things that Reform Movement had left out a long time ago. There's a phrase, Tehiyat HaMetim, the resurrection of the dead, makes it back into the prayer book. Um, the idea of uh, a blessing for putting yourself in a talus uh, is back in the, uh, in the prayer book. So uh, they restored a lot of the traditional stuff that the early reformers had taken out, um, in part because they want to uh, reconnect with tradition. Do they wear Oh yeah, most reformed rabbis wear yarmulkes. It's, it's, cool. it's the small minority who don't these days. And actually the interesting thing is the women wear them even more than the men. Um, because they see they see it as a sort of equal opportunity, traditional traditioning opportunity, um, and for the women who already are in a somewhat less traditional position of being women rabbis, um, they I find often will wear the yarmulke all the time, uh, whereas the men rabbis will sometimes have it on, sometimes not, or uh, some of them choose not to at all. Didn't wear them at all when I was growing up, right? Before rabbis, no. no, no. You you never put a yarmulke on before. No. I'm a little younger than you, but um, my my former rabbi growing up, his um, his thought on this was it's not it's not something you put on just for this part of your day. Mm -hmm. If it's something you believe in, then you do it all the time. And if it's something you do just as a uniform for your bar mitzvah or for your religious practice, then it's not meaningful to you. Uh, just on Saturday mornings, then it doesn't have a greater meaning. Actually, upon entering the sanctuary, he's <laughs> the box. Right, right. But that wasn't. We still had the box. We still had the box. But that wasn't his. Well, what you'll see now in Reformed congregations is, as we'll see as we go through the statement, uh, it's, it's basically optional. You can wear it or not. No one gives you grief if you don't choose to put one on. Um, but you'll see that a large number of people, both men and women, are now wearing them where they didn't in the past. Well, it makes a lot more sense for a woman if, in that philosophy because the men wearing it is just you look traditional, you might appear to people to be conservative, orthodox, whatever. Mm -hmm. For a woman to put it on, you're cool. making a big statement. <laughs> you're sticking it to the man. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a totally different way. It looks totally different. I mean, it makes more sense. Yeah, you're, you're staking you're a, a claim that this is why it doesn't right. look good unless it looks like hairstyle. <laughs> Better to wear a beret. Well. No, the way. When did the women start wearing? You know, the the women began to wear yarmulkes. I I mean, anecdotally, I'm thinking in the late 80s, early 90s, in that period. Which is sort of when the women stopped wearing hats. Not too long before oh, that. Formal hats. So they they, they, they always had hats. Those are actually my niece was wearing it at the bar mitzvahs and. It basically was kind of, the coloring was a little different, but this type of hat I used to wear. And the irony is, and we all wore them. There is a you didn't go anywhere without a stupid hat. There is a there is a traditional woman's head covering. It's just a it's a shidel. It's, oh, yeah, you know, it's a, a scarf yeah. uh, that you're supposed to cover your hair. But that's because it's thought that woman's hair is. Uh, too sensual and provocative and dangerous, so you have to. Uh, you might you might lead men to think the wrong thing. Um, you're just you're being a distraction. Right. Um, so uh, it's interesting though that they're choosing to recover their hair, but with something very different.
Symbolic because it only covers right. as much as That's right. I actually, when I was a kid growing up, uh, because yarmulkes were so foreign in my experience in the humanistic congregation, I thought it was designed to cover the bald spot. <laughs> or that it actually caused the bald spot because it sort of worn off the hair. I learned differently. Okay. So um, you get a flavor from this God section. One, of, one other quick question. Oh, yes. So does the reform, I know in the, the conservative, they won't allow at least men to be in the sanctuary and open the ark if heads are not covered. Is that true in the reform movement? Or yes. Is that... uh, no, I'm sorry, it's not true in the reform movement. Men are able to do that. Okay. Because their approach, as we'll see when we look at Torah, is that these ritual practices are your uh, choice. That is, the standard of whether you do it or not is personal meaning. Now, whether the educational system is oriented towards saying, well, this is something those other Jews do, or this is something that we reformed Jews do because we have a meaning to it, even if you know you're free to do it or not, that's, that's shifted over time. So here in the section on Torah, again, we get an interesting change. As I highlighted, the use of the word Torah instead of the word Bible or Hebrew scriptures, Holy Scriptures is already a, a shift. We affirm that Torah is the foundation of Jewish life. That's very different from the primitive ideas of its own age. We cherish the truths revealed in Torah, God's ongoing revelation to our people, and the record of our people's ongoing relationship with God. You also see here a theology of relationship, partnership, the indwelling of God and man, this kind of new imminent uh, uh, philosophy of God as opposed to the supernatural old man on a throne imagery. It's very much an imminent partnership. A partial God who needs a partner of human action, but also the uh, imminent God is a little spark of divinity in every person as opposed to the, you know, supernatural where uh, all the power is uh, up and beyond. Um, but also you see the word revelation showing up a few times here that didn't show up before. We affirm the Torah is the manifestation of Ahavat Olam, God's eternal love for the Jewish people and for all humanity, which is why he gave it only in Hebrew and only to us. Okay. Uh, we affirm the importance of studying Hebrew the language of Torah and Jewish liturgy, that we may draw closer to our people's sacred text. So here again is a big shift from that early Reform translation uh, movement. Right. We are called by Torah to lifelong study in the home, in the synagogue, and in every place where Jews gather to learn and teach. Notice it isn't only Shabbat stuff now, and what day is Sabbath. It's daily, they, and God too, they talk about daily relationship, daily prayer, daily Torah study. In the synagogue and everywhere, through Torah study, we are called to mitzvot, the means by which we make our lives holy. Not through the moral laws, and not through the social justice mission we saw at the end. It's through mitzvot, through these commandments. We are committed to the ongoing study of the whole array of mitzvot. We study them all. And to the fulfillment of those that address us as individuals and as a community. So, not all of them, may, maybe, but the ones that speak to us. Some of these mitzvot, Sacred obligations have long been observed by Reformed Jews. Others, both ancient and modern, demand renewed attention as a result of the unique context of our own time. So here's where you see that reclaiming. We bring Torah into the world when we seek to sanctify the times and places of our lives through regular home and congregational observance. Shabbat calls us to bring the highest moral values to our daily labor and culminate the work week with Kedushah, holiness, Menucha, rest, and Oneg, joy. The high holy days call us to account for our deeds. The festivals enable us to celebrate with joy our people's religious journey. The days of remembrance remind us of the tragedies and triumphs that shape our people and the milestones of our personal journeys. 
So they're sort of highlighting life cycle and holidays, and those are all important elements of what they call bringing Torah into the world. We bring Torah into the world when we strive to fulfill the highest ethical mandates in our relationship with others and with all God's creation. Partners with God in Tikkun Olam, repairing the world, we are called to help bring nearer the Messianic age. Again, you have a Messianic age, not a personal Messiah. Uh, but the idea is that this Tikkun Olam, this fixing the world, is not just human action. We are not called to the, the what was the language before? Um, uh, participate in the great task of modern times to solve the problem. This is a partnership with God, so it elevates the social action to a divine duty, but also it brings God down to, in some ways, needing us. That is, if we don't do it, it doesn't get done. And so we're partners with God in creation because God needs a partner. Um, it's an interesting, there's a whole interesting other subject of how the theology has changed to divine partnership as opposed to divine sovereignty, uh, where God rules all in a model of a king when you have a political system like that versus God as a partner or God as the little spark in everybody when you have a political system that has all the political sovereignty divided up among people or in a part private public partnerships in government. And again, the politics often affects the theology and not just the other way around. Um, again, they reaffirm their value of uh, social action. We are obliged to pursue tzedek, justice, and righteousness, narrow the gap between the affluent and poor, act against discrimination and oppression. Okay, so you get a lot of that messaging. Uh, again, nothing objectionable there. Okay, um, so that's their version of Torah. And now they talk to Israel. You can see a very big difference from 1885. We are Israel, a people aspiring to hold a people aspiring to holiness, singled out for our ancient covenant and our unique history among the witness nations to be witnesses to God's presence. We are linked by that covenant and history to all Jews in every age and place. No entirely foreign to our mental state, no primitive ideas of their own age, no with respect to their progress. We are linked to every Jew everywhere because we are a people. So clearly a repudiation of the older version. We are committed to the mitzvah of Ahavat Yisrael, love for the Jewish people, and Klai Yisrael, the entirety of the community, recognizing that all of Israel, all Jews are responsible for one another. We reach out to Jews across these boundaries. They recognize their boundaries. <laughs> this is around the same time, by the way, that the Union of American Hebrew Congregations changes its name. It's no longer UAHC. It's now the Union for Reform Judaism. They've accepted the fact that they are, in fact, reform and not just the <laughs> sort of saying what they became rather than uh, is something new it's just like this is the way we've been acting well I mean that's, that's the interesting thing with these platforms in some cases they were ahead of where people were doing and in some cases they are reflecting what people are already doing in this case a lot of these changes had already taken place and that's why they felt they needed to say that not just the 99 yes yes we embrace religious and cultural pluralism as an expression of the vitality of Jewish communal life. Again, we don't object. Just because we're not reformers doesn't mean we have to argue with them on everything just to argue. I mean, these are, these are good values. We pledge to fulfill Reform Judaism's historic commitment to the complete equality of women and men in Jewish life. Their historic commitment? Well, depends on when you count that historic commitment. I mean, they were the first movement to ordain women rabbis, albeit in 1972. <laughs> but I, is that historic in the sense that it's going back a long time, or is that historic as in we did something significant? We're the first one, trendsetting. Compared to all of you. <laughs> yeah. 
We are an inclusive, not compared to the secular Jews, they, they were a little better. Although, as I mentioned, you know, there was a very famous Jewish organized uh, union called the International Ladies Garment Worker Union, whose president was a man for the first 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> it's like WNBA coaches right. took so long. Yeah. A lot of my family were in it. My uncle was a cutter. And, yeah. Yeah. You had to be a man to get the good jobs. That's right. right. I mean, and in the kibbutz movement, it was supposed to be gender egalitarian, and I guess it was assigned the children's duties more often than, yeah. Okay. Uh, we are an inclusive community, opening doors to Jewish life to people of all ages, varied kinds of families, regardless of their secular orientation, to Gerim, those who converted to Judaism, and to all individuals and families, including the intermarried, who strive to create a Jewish home. So notice there's a qualification there at the end. Yeah. That is, if they're doing a home of both, or they're doing a secular home, well, as long as they're doing a Jewish home, we'll, we'll take anybody. But again, you know, good, positive, inclusive statement. As long as you alienate the parent who's not... Well, it's a care. <laughs> it doesn't have to be an alienating experience. <laughs> we believe we must not only open doors for those ready to enter our faith, but those who are seeking a spiritual home. So this is a kind of missionizing statement that if we have a positive religious message, then you know this was the the flip side of the Pittsburgh platform was we have this historic movement to being Jewish. We're purely a religious community, but they still had the kind of insular attitude of Jews regarding converts and. If you're really a primarily religious identity, then it should be open to anybody who wants this kind of message. Uh, we are committed to strengthening uh, the Jewish people of Israel by supporting individuals and families in creations of home, rich in Jewish learning and observance. Don't just do Jewish stuff in synagogue, do it at home too. Light Shabbat candles, uh, observe rituals. Uh, we want to make the synagogue central to Jewish communal life. Well, it's, they're, they're a movement based on synagogues, so of course. We are committed to Medinat Yisrael, the state of Israel, and rejoice in its accomplishments. We affirm the unique qualities of living in Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, and encourage Aliyah, immigration to Israel. Now that is a big change from the previous model of this is our Jerusalem, we don't need anywhere else, we are at home here, very diaspora affirmative. This is now saying we encourage Aliyah, that immigration to Israel is a positive ideal. Why would American Jews? So, reform Jews say that. Why would they say that? Yeah. Well, they're going to take over, and the Orthodox now have no power because all the American Reform Jews moved in. No, no, it's just part of the Zionist identity. There's just a lot of energy. Uh, well, see how that mixes with Reform Jews. Okay. So, Aliyah. Yeah. I can understand giving money, but. Okay. So now you, you feel the difference between um, stated ideology and practical implementation. So you might say, it would be a great idea for uh, all of our congregants to demonstrate their values by giving 10% of their income to charity. If you want to enforce that, or you want to like put a lot of uh, organizational time and energy and capital to doing that, it's going to change things. You can state an ideal, fine. So they're stating an ideal. Are there are there uh, Hebrew schools training them in daily Hebrew life? What will be? Are they encouraging them to go serve in the Israeli army? No, they're not implementing it on that level. Um, but they can say that, that we value and encourage uh, Aliyah, that it's a, it's a positive thing. Okay, now, if you do it. Yeah, and in fact, they, they think it's a good thing if you do it. Um, but yeah, you also, well, but you also have to keep in mind, you know, what's the what's the audience for consumption here? Because um, 
one of the interesting things that's, that happened in the Reform Rabbinate is they're now on boards of rabbis with lots of other rabbis, including more traditional rabbis. And so if that consensus is to wear the yarmulke all the time or to have family that lives in Israel or to encourage people to make aliyah, then you know that, that attitude sort of bleeds over. If they've been serving in APAC or they've been you know, doing other Jewish advocacy, uh, they hear this message all the time, um, and they don't want to be seen to be uh, negative to neutral on it. They want to be on the positive side of that ledger. I mean, our movement's approach, if we mentioned Aliyah, we'd say that's one of many choices. <laughs> um, that you can live a fulfilling cultural Jewish life here, and you can live a fulfilling cultural <coughs> Jewish life in Israel. It will be different. You'll have Hebrew, you'll have uh, access to the schools. On the flip side, you can marry whoever you want here. <laughs> there are positives on the diaspora, too. Um, so that would be our approach. We wouldn't choose a, a prioritizing one. But, but a lot of this seems to me to be defining what what you could be doing. It's not they're not commanding you to be a good That's reformed right. Jew. You must do this and you must do this and you must come to high holidays and you must come to our festivals and you must, you know, do birthright and all of these other things. It's we we this is why we have these festivals. This is why we have the you know the the high holidays. This is why we encourage Aliyah, and we encourage our members to, you know, to seek, you know, a greater connection to their own Reformed Judaism through these avenues. Absolutely. And what's different as well is you can feel a bit in the tone. Here are your options. These are acceptable Reform options. Everything from Aliyah to kosher laws to whatever. These are newly available. In the first 1885 one, they said in or out. Diet, dress, gone, it's obstructing, it's primitive. primitive, right, they're, they're absolutist and almost uh, elitist in telling you what you are allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. This is framing it as, these are the range of available options. Um, and uh, again, the God stuff seems to be a little bit less flexible uh, than some of the other material, but certainly the ritual practice and the Israel stuff is, you're right, uh, not that you have to do this, but this is available as an acceptable reform uh, option. Um, they're committed to a vision of the state of Israel that promotes full civil, human, and religious rights for all its inhabitants, <coughs> and strives for lasting peace between Israel and its neighbors. Again, no objections. Um, we are committed to promoting and strengthening progressive Judaism in Israel. And then this next paragraph is very interesting. We affirm that both Israeli and diaspora Jewry should remain vibrant and interdependent communities. So they don't see a negation of the diaspora. As we urge Jews who reside outside Israel to learn Hebrew as a living language, and to make periodic visits to Israel to study and deepen their relationship to the land of its people, so do we affirm that Israeli Jews have much to learn from the religious life of diaspora Jewish communities. Okay. And they're committed to furthering progressive Judaism throughout the world as a meaningful religious life for the Jewish people. And then, got to have a blessing at the end. <laughs> Can't just talk about a God idea. You need to talk to God. Baruch she'amar v'hayaholam. Blessed is he who spoke and the world was. Praise be the one through whose words all things came to be. May our words find expression in holy actions. May they raise us up to a life of meaning devoted to God's service and to the redemption of our world. It's a lot longer to put it in. Yeah. yeah, the first one was one page. This one is uh, a lot more extensive. Is this the whole thing? This is the whole thing. Um, and so you can see that I mean, if you go to Reform synagogues today, this, this is a reasonable depiction of what you're going to see in most cases. 
There are some still, Chicago Sinai is still practicing a, a modified version of what's called classical reform. Um, and in some smaller towns or uh, in some places in the south, they preserve that kind of classical reform style. St. Louis has one still. Uh, Los Angeles, I think, has you, one. When you say classical, you mean it's more in line Closer to the 1885 classical. And that's where our field trip classical is to Sinai, right? Yeah, they go to Sinai, right, uh, just to get a, a flavor of this. Uh, they still use a, a, a gender-neutralized version of the Union Prayer Book. So instead of man, it's humanity, but it's basically the same text. Um, and nobody wears head coverings. Uh, they have a mixed gender, even Gentile choir. They don't have uh, the Talasim, yeah, they probably don't. There may be a few people. I mean, I, my guess is at this stage they wouldn't tell you to take it off if you walked in with it, but it isn't part of the practice that they uh, they perform. Pipe organ. Uh, yes, they have a pipe organ. Absolutely. It's really yeah, nice. Um, but what you'll find in, in most of the reform synagogues you'll find certainly out in this area um, is they tend to be much more along the lines of the 1999 platform, both in terms of theology and the content as well as the ritual practice and what people tend to do. Um, but this has opened up a possibility for us because there are plenty of Jews who have gone more secular from 1885 off in that direction. Uh, but now you can also see why our earliest rabbis in our movement, Sherwin Wine and Dan Friedman came out of the reform movement because from the platform of 1885, you can see how you can evolve in a more humanistic direction. Uh, but the reform movement itself went a different direction towards this 99 platform from when they were in, uh, at Hebrew Union College in the 50s. Uh, it did change quite a bit. And there are a large number of reformed Jews who either grew up in this classical reform or evolved out of it um, who have not moved the same direction the reform movement has moved into the more traditional um, and the more Hebrew and everything else uh, to the point that uh, the lines between conservative and reform are a lot thinner now than they were a hundred years ago and uh, both in ritual practice as well as in uh, theology um, and there are plenty of people who are on the more secular end of things that you know put up with some of the God stuff to be in classical reform but might not put up with it anymore to be in the model of reform that's out there now um, and potentially for us, that's a, that's a fertile audience. Why do you think there was such a movement back to God in this situation? Well, in this document, I think part of the problem was that the more you say God, the more you're going to believe it. So even if the early Pittsburgh platform people were talking about a God idea, or they were trying to redefine God as a partner, in the end, they just kept saying God king, God is king, and after a while, you start... It's hard to say that and not have it affect what you actually believe. Um, or you begin to study it and then you have to decide, do I believe this or do I believe something else? Um, part of this, again, you know, again, the reform movement is conventional. Uh, when they first started, they believed they were going to be American Judaism. So they had the chutzpah to say, this is what is and this is what isn't. And now they were swamped by the Eastern European Jews. The reform movement became the smallest movement. Um, actually, orthodoxy was smaller, but reform was smaller than conservative for a long time. Um, and so they, they lost their nerve to say we are you know, as radical as we, we think we are. Um, and uh, also the, the rabbis went through an interesting training process because a lot of them come from reform background homes, but when they go to rabbinical schools, when they try out traditional stuff, they try keeping kosher, they try observing Shabbat, um, they spend a year in Jerusalem uh, for their Hebrew training and they get that experience there. And so it really has changed their sense of what it means to be a Reformed Jew, and then that leads down into the, uh, into the mem membership. Um, so I think that it's, it's been a gradual process in reform, but it's, it's really transformed it. Um, 
in, into something that the Pittsburgh platform writers wouldn't really recognize as reform because it's changed so much of what was visibly reform. How, how much of it also stems from um, what's gone on in Israel starting in you know, the late 60s and the 70s and just the um, having an, a Jewish identity that is, um, you know, on par or even greater than an American identity and, and your, you know, self-actualization oh, yes. is I am Jewish and the way I define myself as Jewish is I, have, I believe in the right of Israel to exist and I believe in, you know, these, you know, the Torah and all of these, you know, there's energy behind that kind of... Well, and, and I agree, and also the, the process of acculturation has changed. You know, post-Hitler, uh, um, you didn't want to hide that you were Jewish. You, I mean, some did, but uh, many more wanted to stand up and say, you know what, I am Jewish. I am open to these traditional things. I am part of Klal Yisrael. I'm being, my, my fellow German Jews are being persecuted for their ethnic identity. I'm not going to reject them. Um, so that was a big shift. Uh, the integration of these Eastern European Jews into Reform synagogues with their stronger ethnic consciousness changed things. And the questions people are asking now are different. You know, in the 40s and 50s, it was how to be American, moving out to the suburbs and fitting in. Now it's how to be Jewish and why be Jewish. And uh, you can't assume a kind of Jewish ethnic experience in the background that you had growing up in the ethnic neighborhoods in the city or growing up in Jewish suburb suburban developments that were still 80% Jewish, uh, you know, in the 50s and 60s. Now you're living in mixed neighborhoods, mixed families, everything else. If you're going to the institution, you want the Jewish stuff. And the other thing you want is the kosherization of tradition. You will hear the word tradition more times in a reform synagogue than you will in a conservative synagogue. Because they're highlighting how traditional they are, because that's what people are coming for. They want to feel authorized by tradition. So that's why they dress up like Jews. That's why they talk like Jews. They want to feel like Jews at least for the time they're in that space. And, um, and parents are sending their kids to Jewish day camp and getting a very... Um, or look at the names. I mean, how many, how many Jewish families now are picking Hebrew names for their kids as a way of being uber-Jew? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's one of these phenomena that uh, more and more people who are not Israeli by background are picking very obviously Jewish names or Hebrew, even Hebrew-Israeli names for their kids. So, so when you guys sit around at the IISHJ and stuff, do you say, maybe we ought to move a little more to the <laughs> right to pick up a few more souls of the yeah, yeah. <laughs> is, that, is that the discussion? Well, here's our challenge. Okay, just like we have, you know, we have our founding tradition and its ideology, um, some of which was a reaction against Reform Judaism and the changes it was making. Um, we have our core convictions, uh, but there's also marketing, right? So one thing we've adapted to in the last 20 years is the word spirituality. Originally, we were allergic to it. You said spirituality, you meant spirit world, you meant supernatural ghosts and goblins and forget it, you're out of here. Now we understand that a lot of people mean spirituality to mean inspiration, emotion, uh, sort of a non-rational connection to things. It doesn't have to be anti-rational. Uh, it could be beauty. It could be nature. There are a lot of ways you can access that concept and inspire people that way. Um, so we've become a bit more flexible on the marketing side. We haven't changed our core beliefs about the world, but we understand doing that a bit. So in terms of our style of services, I mean, look, even shifting from Dan Friedman to me, um, people who were in the congregation before I came here, we brought the Hebrew letters into the service books. They weren't there. They were always just in transliteration in English letters. 
Um, and that's a piece where, is it risking people seeing things they don't recognize? Yeah, but other people learned it, and they feel confident to see those things there. Um, and we always put the transliteration in English letters, so people who want to sing along can do it either way. Um, and, uh, you know, again, we don't uh, keep it out for the fear that someone might have a rejectionist response. Um, so we'll have uh, Hebrew poetry meetings as part of the service occasionally. Um, so we've made some changes in that direction. Um, we're, you know, nowhere near looking to say we now agree with everything in the Pittsburgh platform, <laughs> um, because we still have some disagreements even with that. Um, but we've, we've thought about ways to, to try and broaden the appeal so that on one hand we're still appealing to the secularized audience, that's our core target, but also those people who are being left behind by the reform movement uh, could possibly find a home with us. The question is, do they want the kind of innocuous God idea they were talking to for all those years, or are they willing to say if the God idea was just an idea, then maybe we can have other ideas that are fitting that space without using the, the phrase or the word God idea. If they can do that, then, then they can find a home with us. I think, well, this is completely anecdotal, so I'm not going to say I, uh, this is a result of my big yes. study, but I feel like uh, among a lot of reform people who uh, are members of reform congregations, even though in their daily life they pretty much do the same exact thing I do, but they want that place to be, uh, and the rabbi, to be... Holy. Right, traditional and holy, and they want to hear everything there, and they would not give that up, even though the other 300, however many yeah. days a year. So, and well, like the, the rabbi is like the, he's the designated Jew; he has to suffer on their behalf. Right, right. They don't want to see the rabbi, you know, out eating his ham sandwich or whatever. They don't, and even though they are doing the same thing. So I think that that is such a difficult obstacle to get beyond, that even though they believe the same thing I believe, they do what I, but they want that place to be the magical place that you go and have whatever it is about it. And I, I think it's, that is a huge obstacle. Sure. Well, uh, two, two stories on that. One is the first year I was here, we didn't have uh, morning services for Yom Kippur. So I uh, went out to eat at the Walker Brothers Pancake House for breakfast. Um, and I went to services later, and someone said, well, what if someone had seen you there? And I, I would have said, well, what are you doing here? Right. <laughs> you know, to meet me in the restaurant. It's like they're, you know, just wandering through. Um, the other story like that is a, a traditional rabbi goes on vacation to Hawaii, and he decides he wants to let his hair down a bit, so he orders the, you know, roast pig. Um, and so just as they bring it to his table, uh, he hears, Rabbi Schwartz, it's someone from his congregation is there, and he says, you order an apple in this place, and look at how they serve it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. Well, of course, when we started this, con this congregation, there was a big argument about you cannot believe in God. Now they don't say, they don't say, say that. They don't alienate. Mm -hmm. Right, so our, what we positively yeah, yeah, do... We don't want to alienate people who want people to join. <laughs> yeah, heaven forbid, people join. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, hopefully this gives you a little snapshot of the evolution of the reform movement and where it is today. Um, I mean, it is a fascinating movement in some ways because it's trying to balance this tradition and modernity and change. We say you haven't changed enough. The conservatives say you've changed too much. And they're, they're sort of stuck in between. Um, in fact, if anything, we give them respectability because now they can stand up and say, we are traditional, we are defending tradition compared to those people. Those schlubs. Yeah, that's right. <laughs>
so they should promote us. <laughs> <laughs> This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke.